Chapter 14, Part 3 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Last Years of McKinley, Part 3. Nevertheless, when the convention met on June 20th, the talk was all for Roosevelt. The proceedings on the first day were purely formal, with no evidence of excitement. The applause given to the speeches was decorous but not enthusiastic. On the following day the committee reported a platform which was speedily adopted. It praised the record of the administration and renewed the allegiance of the party to the gold standard and to the policy of protection and reciprocity. It advocated subsidies to the American merchant marine and a more effective restriction of pauper immigration. It commended the reform of the civil service and a liberal pension policy and put forth the usual number of popular generalities. In order to prevent the Democrats from making a distinct issue of the trust question, it denounced conspiracies and combinations to restrict business. On June 22nd, the third day of the convention, Senator Foraker presented Mr. McKinley's name for the nomination and was seconded by Mr. Roosevelt. When the roll was called, it showed that every delegate had voted for Mr. McKinley, who received 930 ballots. The applause following the announcement was hearty but not uproarious, since there had been no contest to stir men's blood. Instead, the delegates indulged in various forms of horseplay, while a mock elephant, the popular symbol of the party, moved clumsily around the hall amid cheers and laughter. At one o'clock on the same day, Governor Roosevelt was put in nomination for the vice presidency by an Iowa delegate, who was followed by other speakers, among them Mr. Depew of New York, who spoke of William McKinley, a Western man with Eastern ideas, and Theodore Roosevelt, an Eastern man with Western characteristics. The noise and clamor and shouting which had hitherto been lacking now broke forth in a tempest which was renewed and prolonged when the announcement was made that Mr. Roosevelt had received 925 votes, every one in fact except his own and those of four delegates who were absent from the hall. Mr. Roosevelt signified his acceptance of the nomination, yielding, as he said, to the will of his party. The Democratic National Convention met in Kansas City on July 4th in the midst of the noise and excitement attending the celebration of the national holiday. The convention was more disposed to join in that celebration than to proceed at once to business. It listened to the reading of the Declaration of Independence, to patriotic orations, and to vocal music. In the evening, Governor Altgeld pronounced a eulogy on Mr. Bryan, and Senator Tillman read out with tremendous emphasis the platform which had been adopted by the Committee on Resolutions. This document denounced the so-called colonial policy of the Republican administration, declared its opposition to militarism, attacked the trusts and all private monopolies, and called the Dingley Tariff a trust-breeding measure. The vital paragraph, however, was that which indicated the party's intention to make imperialism the supreme question to be discussed before the people. The burning issue of imperialism growing out of the Spanish War involves the very existence of the Republic and the destruction of our free institutions. We regard it as the paramount issue of the campaign. Another paragraph reaffirmed and endorsed the principles of the National Democratic Platform adopted at Chicago in 1896 and demanded once more the immediate restoration of the free and unlimited coinage of silver and gold at the present legal ratio of sixteen to one, without waiting for the aid or consent of any other nation. The platform was received with tremendous cheering, many of the delegates seizing their state emblems and marching with them about the hall. 
and banners were displayed bearing such partisan inscriptions as Lincoln abolished slavery, McKinley has restored it. The climax of this temporary frenzy was reached when there was suddenly swung from the iron-girded roof a gigantic American flag, more than seventy-five feet long, which streamed over the heads of the mob bearing the words, The flag of the Republic forever, of an empire never. Note 49, page 646. On the following day, in the presence of twenty thousand men and women, the democratic platform was adopted amid tumultuous shouting which continued for more than twenty minutes, after which Mr. Bryan was nominated for the presidency, not by roll-call, but by acclamation. His nomination was seconded by Mr. Hill of New York, who could undoubtedly have been made the candidate for vice-president had he been willing to accept the nomination. As he explicitly declined, the convention nominated Mr. Adlai E. Stevenson of Illinois, who had been vice-president from 1893 to 1897. The convention then adjourned, having made it clear that the three issues of the campaign were the trusts, free silver, and imperialism. As to the trusts, the Democratic Party could not hope to make a very strenuous fight. The Republicans had also denounced these monopolistic combinations, and President McKinley in a recent message had devoted a paragraph to them, somewhat vaguely worded, but still with sufficient point to make his remarks available for campaign use. Moreover, the country still remembered how Democratic senators had surrendered to the Sugar Trust in 1894. The revival of the free silver question was creditable to Mr. Bryan's sincerity and consistency, but it was exceedingly bad politics. The West was now prosperous. There was no longer an immense debtor class to whom the silver argument could appeal. Even Mr. Bryan's own following had lost interest in that cause, and there was nothing to be gained by its further advocacy. Imperialism as an issue was a most amorphous nondescript. The word was one of those party cries which have the exasperating characteristic of meaning anything and everything or nothing. For what was indicated by imperialism when the term was analyzed impartially? The Democratic orators professed to think that the American Republic was in danger of being turned into an empire overnight. Yet in reality, no one had the slightest fear of any such catastrophe. To talk of imperialism in such a sense as this was so ludicrous a thing as to make it quite impossible for Americans to take it seriously. The Democratic platform also identified imperialism with militarism and in the campaign which followed, Mr. Bryan talked in a most portentous way about the fortresses which in imagination he already saw towering above every city in the land, bristling with cannon, and filled with a licentious soldiery prepared at a moment's notice to make the gutters run with blood. His followers professed a horror of what they called the growth of the military spirit in the United States, beginning, so they said, in the war with Spain. But as that war had been declared by the unanimous vote of all parties in Congress, the war spirit was scarcely fraught with peril to American independence. Mr. Bryan should have known this, because at the time he himself had felt the war spirit, and it had caused him to volunteer and to get himself appointed colonel of a regiment. Did he and his regiment resemble a licentious soldiery? He would hardly have admitted it, yet his command was typical of all American regiments and hence his vivid picture of frowning forts and blood-bespattered streets failed lamentably in its appeal to the common sense of the American people. The campaign, therefore, opened with slight enthusiasm, and though Mr. Bryan repeated his spectacular canvas of 1896, and though there was an immense amount of oratory indulged in by the hired speakers of both parties, the issue was never doubtful. During the summer, in fact, attention was largely diverted from domestic politics to a series of dramatic incidents that were taking place in China. 
The Chinese had been greatly irritated by the aggressions made upon their territory by France and Germany and Russia. In May of 1900, rumors began to spread regarding a powerful secret organization in the province of Shantung. The organization was spoken of as the Boxers, this being a very free translation of the native name. Its object was originally to defend the country against foreign intrigues. Finally, however, it fell under the direction of ignorant fanatics whose watchword was exterminate the foreigners. Sporadic acts of violence were followed by demonstrations so serious that the legations in Pekin finally called upon their respective governments for military protection. Small bodies of marines were sent by various nations in response to this request. But presently the boxers, who were now joined by a portion of the Chinese army, gained possession of Pekin, cut off its communications with the outer world, murdered the German ambassador, and besieged the foreigners who had gathered in the grounds of the British legation, fortified with skill and defended with splendid courage against overwhelming numbers. But for a time the fate of the beleaguered band was utterly unknown, and the most startling stories were accepted as being true. It was reported that the wife of the Russian ambassador had been boiled in oil, that the Christians in the legation had been butchered after being put to torture, and that Pekin had been the scene of indescribable outrages. There were cabled to Europe and the United States specific and most alarming details of which the following are an example. In their final attempt to cut their way through, the legationers formed a square with the women and children in the center. When the boxers realized that they were being attacked, they became like wild beasts and shot each other in the darkness. The foreigners went mad and killed all their women and children with revolvers. Heavy guns bombarded all night until the buildings were demolished and in flames. Many foreigners were roasted in the ruins. The boxers rushed upon them and hacked and stabbed both dead and wounded, cutting off their heads and carrying these through the streets on their rifles shouting furiously. They then attacked the native Christian quarters, massacring all who refused to join them, ill-treating the women and braining the children. Hundreds of mission buildings were burned. All China is now menaced. In the provinces of Hupa and Hunan, thousands of native Christians have been mutilated and tortured, the women being first assaulted and then massacred. Note 50, page 649 Meanwhile, the United States and Europe were astir. Ships of war were sent to Chinese waters, and on June 10th a body of some 2,000 marines and sailors, British, American, Japanese, and French, attempted to march upon Pekin under the command of Vice Admiral Seymour of the British Navy. This attempt would not have been made had not the American naval representative, Captain McCalla, declared at a council of war, The minister of my country is in danger, and I have been ordered to rescue him. I shall march even if I have to do so with none but my own men. The attempt was unavailing, however, for the hostile Chinese swarmed by thousands. They were well armed and had cannon of the latest models. On June 17th, the Allied ships bombarded the Chinese forts at Taku and then carried them by storm. The result was simply to infuriate the Chinese who massed an army at Tianjin. Upon this place an attack was made by a force of Japanese, Russians, British, Americans and French, and after much fierce fighting it was taken. Then an Allied force of 18,000 troops pushed on to Pekin. The march began on August 4th, and after almost continuous fighting, Pekin was reached, its walls were battered open by artillery, and the legations were relieved. British soldiers had the honor of first entering the beleaguered compound, but the American flag was the first foreign standard to be hoisted on the walls of the Chinese capital. Note 51
page 650. Throughout this period, diplomacy had been active. Of all the foreign offices, the American State Department was the only one which had thoroughly kept its head. Since Mr. McKinley's inauguration, several changes had taken place in this important cabinet place. Mr. John Sherman, who was greatly enfeebled when he became secretary, had broken down completely under the strain of the Spanish War. He lost his memory and remained only nominally at his post until his resignation in 1898, when he was succeeded by Judge William R. Day of Ohio, whom President McKinley characterized as having a genius for common sense. Judge Day held office for a few months only, resigning in order to head the American peace envoys at the Congress of Paris. His successor was Mr. John Hay, who soon proved himself to be one of the ablest statesmen of his time. As a very young man, he had been private secretary to President Lincoln, and then for several years a member of the diplomatic service in Paris, in Vienna, and in Madrid. Under President Hayes, he had been first assistant secretary of state, and in 1897, President McKinley had made him ambassador to Great Britain. Mr. Hay was a gentleman of unusual breadth, intelligence, and tact. His social gifts were very marked. He was an accomplished man of letters, and his experience had given him a comprehensive knowledge of men and of great affairs. When the Chinese crisis became acute, Mr. Hay took and maintained a consistent attitude, and by his skill and judgment won the assent to it of the great powers of Europe. He chose to regard the Boxer outbreak as a rebellion against the Chinese imperial government, and he maintained the fiction that for its successes that government was not responsible. During the dark period of the march upon Pekin, the American secretary was almost alone in believing that the legations were still safe. In the meantime, he labored to avoid the dismemberment of China. Note 52, page 651. And he both asked and secured from other nations written pledges that the open door for trade should be maintained after the suppression of the boxers. In the negotiations of September and October of the same year, the United States, through Mr. Hay, did much to soften the harshness of the terms imposed by the Allies upon China, and he secured the preservation of what he called the administrative entity of that country. Note 53, page 651. The last few weeks before the presidential election were full of bustle, but only the most optimistic Democrats felt any real hope of Mr. Bryan's success. On Saturday, November 3rd, the Great Sound Money Parade of 1896 was duplicated in New York. More than 100,000 voters marched in the pouring rain. This demonstration is to be remembered chiefly because of the tactlessness of the Democratic managers who hung across the line of march banners bearing the legend, McKinley's badge is on my coat, but Brian is near my heart. God bless him. This insult to the sincerity and courage of the Republican paraders gave so great offense as undoubtedly to lose thousands of votes to the cause which Mr. Bryan represented. Nothing, however, in that year could have been done to turn the tide away from President McKinley. In the popular vote he received a majority over Mr. Bryan of some 850,000 ballots, and in the Electoral College he had 292 votes against Mr. Bryan's 155. Mr. Bryan, in fact, failed to carry his own state, his own city, and even his own polling precinct, and he received the electoral votes of only Idaho, Colorado, Montana, and Nevada in addition to those of the southern states. The neo-republicanism was everywhere triumphant. President McKinley's second inauguration resembled his first, though it was still more imposing. His new administration began with the best omens. No perplexing problems existed to burden his mind or to stimulate a purely factional opposition. 
his personal popularity had become very great. In the early spring of 1901, he made in company with his wife a journey westward to California, passing through the southern states. Everywhere he was received with the utmost cordiality and respect. He spoke to the multitudes that greeted him not as the president of a party, but as the chosen ruler of a united nation. These days recalled to students of history the second administration of President Monroe, which has become memorable as the era of good feeling. The president himself had really risen above the plane of partisanship. The wider field of interest which the United States now occupied had undoubtedly broadened and elevated President McKinley's statesmanship. He gave striking evidence of this in a remarkable speech which he delivered on September 5th in the city of Buffalo before a gathering of 50,000 people. In that speech he showed plainly that he was no longer fettered by the dogmas of a narrow protectionism. He spoke words which ten years before would have seemed to him heretical. But they were words of genuine statesmanship, and they should be remembered and inscribed in golden letters upon the temple of American economics. Comparison of ideas is always educational, and as such it instructs the brain and hand of man. Friendly rivalry follows, which is the spur of industrial improvement, the inspiration to useful invention, and to high endeavor in all departments of human activity. The quest for trade is an incentive to men of business to devise, invent, improve, and economize in the course of production. Business life, whether among ourselves or with other people, is ever a sharp struggle for success. It will be none the less so in the future. But though commercial competitors we are, commercial enemies we must not be. The wisdom and energy of all the nations are none too great for the world's work. The success of art, science, industry, and invention is an international asset and a crowning glory. Isolation is no longer possible or desirable. God and man have linked the nations together. No nation can longer be indifferent to any other. Only a broad and enlightened policy will keep what we have. No other policy will get more. By the sensible trade arrangements which will not interrupt our home production, we shall extend the outlets for our increasing surplus. A system which provides a mutual exchange of commodities is manifestly essential to the continued healthful growth of our export trade. We must not repose in fancied security that we can forever sell everything and buy little or nothing. If such a thing were possible, it would not be best for us or for those with whom we have to deal. We should take from our customers such of their products as we can use without harm to our industries and labor. Reciprocity is the natural growth of our wonderful industrial development under the domestic policy now firmly established. What we produce beyond our domestic consumption must have a vent abroad. The excess must be relieved through a foreign outlet, and we should sell everywhere we can and buy wherever the buying will enlarge our sales and productions, and thereby make a greater demand for home labor. The period of exclusiveness is past. The expansion of our trade and commerce is the pressing problem. Commercial wars are unprofitable. A policy of goodwill and friendly trade relations will prevent reprisals. Reciprocity treaties are in harmony with the spirit of the times. Measures of retaliation are not. If, perchance, some of our tariffs are no longer needed for revenue or to encourage and protect our industries at home, why should they not be employed to extend and promote our markets abroad? Gentlemen, let us ever remember that our interest is in concord, not conflict, and that our real eminence rests in the victories of peace and not in those of war. 
we hope that all who are represented here may be moved to higher and nobler effort for their own and the world's good, and that out of this city may come not only greater commerce and trade for us all, but more essential than these, relations of mutual respect, confidence and friendship, which will deepen and endure. Our earnest prayer is that God will graciously vouchsafe prosperity, happiness and peace to all our neighbors, and like blessings to all the peoples and the powers of the earth. Note 54, page 655. President McKinley had visited Buffalo for the purpose of inspecting the so-called Pan-American Exposition. On the day after his public speech, he held a reception in the Temple of Music giving a personal greeting to all who wished to meet him. Among these was a young man having the appearance of a respectable mechanic whose right hand was apparently covered with a bandage. As he approached the President, he rapidly uncovered a revolver, and before he could be prevented, he had fired two bullets into the body of the president. Ere he had fired a third time, he was seized and hurled to the ground. Mr. McKinley stood for a moment as though dazed, and then swayed backward into the arms of his attendants. The first words that he spoke were to his private secretary. Cortell, you be careful. Tell Mrs. McKinley gently then observing the attempt of the maddened people to tear his assailant to pieces, the president said in a feeble voice, Let no one hurt him. The assassin was rescued by the police. He proved to be a German Pole named Leon Franz Jolgos, by occupation a blacksmith in Detroit. He was an unintelligent dull young man whose brain had been inflamed by listening to the oratory of foreign anarchists, among them particularly a woman named Emma Goldman who had long been conspicuous as an agitator. In 1893 she had spent ten months in prison for inciting to riot, and her views were revolutionary even beyond those of ordinary anarchists. Short in figure, hard-featured, and frowsy in appearance, she hated women and spent her life chiefly among men. At one time she had been the mistress of Johann Most, though later she had quarreled with him and had assaulted him at an anarchistic meeting. Note 55, page 656. It was from her more than any other that Cholgos received the impulse which led him to commit the crime for which presently he suffered death, October 29th. President McKinley lingered for a few days, and the favorable reports which were given out by his physicians led the country to hope that he might recover. This hope proved to be baseless, and he died on the morning of Saturday, September 14th. His remains lay in state in Buffalo and afterwards in the rotunda of the Capitol at Washington, where they were received with impressive ceremonies. His body was interred in the cemetery at Canton. To President McKinley there was accorded a spontaneous tribute of universal grief such as no one in our history since Washington had ever yet received. Americans sorrowed both for the ruler and for the man and their sorrow was the more poignant because of the false hope which had been given them by the premature and quite unjustifiable optimism of his physicians. In it all there was nothing official, nothing studied or insincere. Its most impressive feature was found in its quiet intensity, the intensity of a feeling too sacred and too profound for utterance in mere words. At the hour when the simple ceremonial in Canton was proceeding, a great hush came over every city and hamlet in the land. The streets were deserted. The activities of seventy millions of people ceased. Men and women of every type and class felt the shadow touch for a moment their own lives, and they let their sorrow find supreme expression in the solemnity of a reverent silence. It was very human, and it was very wonderful.
As a man, Mr. McKinley belonged to the older school of American statesmen whom he recalled in his personal appearance, in his smooth-shaven face, his customary garb of black, and the suavity of his address. He would have been at home in the society of Clay and Cass and Benton, and he will undoubtedly stand as the last president of that particular type. He possessed also the personal dignity of the older days, with the advantage of a change in public sentiment which allowed him to maintain that dignity without offense to the people. The time had gone by when Americans took delight in an assumption of roughness and rudeness in their chief magistrate. The orgy which disgraced Jackson's first inauguration would have been impossible in 1901, and Americans no longer expected their presidents to appear, so to speak, in their shirt-sleeves. Mr. McKinley always managed to keep his purely personal affairs and his domestic life from being vulgarized by the peculiar sort of publicity which the newspapers gave to many of his predecessors. He maintained, indeed, outside of his public appearances, the quiet dignity and reserve that befit a private gentleman, and that are still more to be desired in the ruler of a mighty nation. It is remarkable, indeed, that Mr. McKinley should have been so thoroughly successful in this particular thing, for his early environment was one of the most democratic simplicity, while before 1896 his political associates were by no means sticklers for niceties of form. Probably Mr. McKinley was fortunate in his advisers and at the same time quick to take a hint. At any rate, the fact remains that with the single exception of Mr. Arthur, no president since the pre-Jacksonian days had made things go off so well as did President McKinley. And as Americans had begun to learn some needed lessons from older countries, they heartily commended the refined simplicity which pervaded the White House from 1896 to 1901. This satisfaction was heightened by the knowledge that the President's private life and character were not only spotless, but exceptionally beautiful. Intellectually, Mr. McKinley is probably to be compared with Millard Fillmore, to whom he bore some likeness. Not in any sense endowed with originality, he possessed good judgment, shrewdness, tact, and a willingness to listen to advice from any quarter. He was not a reader of books, and the only quotation that one recalls as made by him in public was from some obscure newspaper poet of the West, a woman. He knew men, however, and he was a close student of political events. As a speaker, he had a pleasant manner and at times could be sententious, but he never made a speech that was at all remarkable for its eloquence. Mr. McKinley, indeed, in oratory, as in his other gifts and attributes, represented the Horatian Oria Mediocritas, he was neither bloodless and cold like Calhoun, nor, on the other hand, did he possess the compelling magnetism which made Clay and Blaine so wonderful as political leaders. Yet, if he could not rouse great masses of men to a frenzy of enthusiasm, he could always win a hearing. If men would not die for him as they would for Clay, they would at any rate vote for him, which, after all, was much more to the point. He lacked magnetism, but he possessed a rare benevolence, a genuine kindliness which made it utterly impossible for even a political enemy to be anything but a personal friend. And kindliness such as this must have been absolutely genuine, or the insincerity of it would have been sometimes felt, whereas the popular belief in Mr. McKinley's good intentions grew firmer with every year. In the early days of his incumbency, there were many who thought that they detected in his phraseology something which savored of Kant but they forgot that he was a member of a religious body which makes a freer use of certain semi-religious expressions than is common, and that Mr. McKinley's way of expressing himself was the way in which he had been taught to speak and was, indeed, a mere façon de parler. 
that he was no bigot, that he exercised a self-respecting independence of thought and action in such matters, was seen in the fact that, in spite of a bitter outcry from the most extreme of his co-religionists, he stood out firmly for the retention of the army canteen, that he set wine upon his table at diplomatic dinners, and that he was rather immoderately fond of very black and very strong cigars. All these things served to characterize the man, sincere, kind-hearted, firm, and sensible, not brilliant, to be sure, but eminently safe, the sort of man who does in general go farther than any but the very greatest genius. As a statesman, any discussion of Mr. McKinley must center around the assertion so often made to the effect that he always held his ear close to the ground. This was for a long while flung at him by his political opponents as a taunt, but in time it was taken up by his supporters and set forth as embodying the highest possible compliment to his sagacity. Yes, they said, Mr. McKinley always has his ear close to the ground so that he may catch the earliest echoes of popular opinion. This shows his statesmanship, for in the American Republic the President is the servant of the people, elected to do their bidding, and it is by holding his ear close to the ground that he learns just what it is that they desire. The best example of this sort of statesmanship, they said, is found in Lincoln, who, like Mr. McKinley, also held his ear close to the ground, and this is why Lincoln always had the people with him rather than against him. There is much truth in this. Yet the comparison with Lincoln challenges inquiry and justifies dissent. It is undoubtedly true that a president is elected for the purpose of translating into action the political aspirations of the nation over which he rules. But a distinction must be made between a well-considered policy that has been discussed perhaps for years and the hasty impulse of the moment. When a sudden wave of excitement surges over the country and sweeps away all sober judgment, is the chief executive to ask himself only whether this is what the people want? Or is he to consider whether it is what they will approve when the passions of the moment have died away? Is he to be a reed shaken by the wind? or a rock standing foursquare to all the winds that blow, defying obloquy and misrepresentation when his own brain and conscience tell him that the thing should not be done? Had Washington in 1793 simply held his ear close to the ground, he would have found the nation eager for a second war with England. He would have meekly submitted to the insolence of Jeannette, and the poor little fledgling of a republic would have perished in the train of France, then drunken and delirious with the madness of revolution. In 1861, when Captain Wilkes forcibly took the Confederate envoys, Mason and Slidell, from the British steamer Trent, had Lincoln merely held his ear to the ground, he would have heard the people of the North demanding loudly that the envoys should be kept and that the nation should face a war with England. It was hard for Washington to ignore the clamor of the Jacobins. But he did so at the cost of vile aspersions on his character, which made him say in the bitterness of his soul, I would rather be in my grave than in the presidency. It was hard for Lincoln to ignore the momentary passion of the North and to comply with the peremptory and arrogant demand of Lord John Russell. But he did so, and was charged with having humiliated and dishonored his country. Both Washington and Lincoln knew, however, that the supreme mandate which had been given them was in the one case to build up and in the other to preserve the state and they both stood firm against the people's will in order that the people might be saved from its own madness. A true statesman holds his ear close to the ground, 
but he does not do so for the purpose of catching every murmur that is audible, but rather to detect that deeper note which tells him that the time is ripe for the consummation of far-reaching plans long cherished and long since decided upon. One may admit that the President is the people's servant, but one should not admit that, to use a rather vulgar phrase of Mr. Bryan's, he is the people's hired man. He is no doubt an officer. He is not a lackey. President McKinley's response to every popular impulse explains the apparent inconsistencies of his political career. These inconsistencies lay in his action, but not in his fundamental theory. He wished to serve the people, and if the people chose to veer from one view to another, then the people, and not he, was answerable for it all. This was a consistent theory, but the fact that he held it takes him out of the category of high statesmanship. For a statesman of the first rank makes up his mind upon certain questions once for all, and having done so, he remains true to his convictions. He may tack and seem at times to take another course, but one will always find him in the end still sweeping toward the goal. Thus President Garfield was by study and conviction a free trader, and in 1880 he was for the time the leader of the Party of Protection. Yet he had not changed. He never once retracted his ringing assertion made years before in the House of Representatives. I am for the kind of protection which in the end leads to free trade. He believed in the ultimate triumph of free trade, and he looked upon protection as at the most a mere expedient. But with Mr. McKinley the case was different. He was a high protectionist for many years because his constituents and his party favored high protection. In 1901, he advocated a limited free trade because the people had begun to veer around in that direction. The passages already quoted from his speech at Buffalo prove his readiness to adapt his opinions to the opinions of the great majority. It must be confessed that Mr. McKinley clung to his advocacy of silver for a remarkably long time. From 1890 to 1896, he probably did a great deal that indirectly helped to strengthen Mr. Bryan's cause. The main difference between the two men at this time was that Mr. Bryan came out boldly as an advocate of free silver, while Mr. McKinley used the more discreet yet substantially identical phrase, bimetallism, just as in the Buffalo speech he veiled his partial conversion to a species of free trade by giving it the tactful name of reciprocity. It is perfectly well known that even after Mr. McKinley had been nominated in 1896, he shrank from declaring that honest money was understood by him to mean gold monometallism. He hoped to fight the campaign of that year upon the single question of the tariff, and it was only when the issue had been absolutely forced upon him that at last he gave up his bimetallism and took the stand which President Cleveland had taken long before. These facts by no means indicate that Mr. McKinley was weak or inconsistent. They simply mean that his fundamental position was one of compliance with whatever seemed to him to be the popular will. He changed his views whenever he became convinced that the opinion of the majority had changed, for he regarded this as the duty of a statesman. It was not a very lofty view, but it was at least an intelligible one, and it explains his whole political career. It is strange that he was so often and so absurdly misunderstood. The failure to understand him was responsible for a singular incongruity in many of the estimates formed by otherwise intelligent men regarding his character. The opposition press, for instance, used to speak of him at one time as gelatinous and at another as unfeeling and implacable. 
in a single issue of an influential newspaper there once appeared a column devoted to ridicule of mr mckinley for being a mere puppet in the hands of his advisers and another column devoted to the denunciation of him as a sort of political ogre relentlessly crushing out the liberties of an innocent people in seas of blood now it is sufficiently obvious that he could not very well have been at once a puppet and a stern dictator and it is clear enough that he was really neither he was not a weak man, nor on the other hand was he a man of iron. He could be very firm in matters upon which his mind had been made up. Witness his manly independence in retaining an upright commissioner in the pension office. Note 56, page 663. Despite the venal clamoring of innumerable old soldiers. But in the main and in matters of high policy, he conscientiously believed that he must shape his action in accordance with his party's needs and wishes and this, in fact, he did. For the rest, his statesmanship was often far from brilliant. A more sagacious president, for instance, would not have allowed himself to say that it was our plain duty to give to Puerto Rico unrestricted privileges of trade with the United States, or else, having said so, he should have made his Congress say so too. A stronger party leader would not have negotiated an important treaty. Note 57, page 664 only to see it almost contemptuously rejected by a Senate of which his own party had entire control. Such, then, was President McKinley as a man and as a statesman. His place in history will be greater than that of greater men, because it was his fortune to hold office at a time when the events occurred which made his presidency epoch-making. For the war with Spain, Mr. McKinley deserves neither praise nor blame. The conflict had been inevitable ever since the Cubans rose in 1868 against the tyranny of Spain, and since Spanish soldiers shot down the crew of the Virginias at Santiago. From that moment, Spain and the United States were like two railway engines heading toward each other upon a single track. A collision between them could not be avoided. The moment of the crash was one to be determined by pure chance. But because that moment came when President McKinley was in power, and because the consequences of it were so far-reaching as to transform the whole genius of our government, the years of his administration must always be a subject of the deepest interest to the student of American history. He died at an hour that was friendly to his fame. A foreign war had ended in the triumph of the American arms. The Republic of the West had at last assumed its place among the great nations of the earth, Political bitterness had spent itself in the electoral contest of the preceding year, and there had succeeded a lull which brought with it goodwill and tolerance. Extraordinary material prosperity had enriched the nation, so that men might at some future day look back upon those years as to a golden age. And finally, the tragic ending of a useful, honorable life stirred all the chords of human sympathy, and seemed to cast upon that life itself the pathos and the splendor of a consecration. End of chapter 14